This episode of the Aquademia podcast is sponsored by Ace Aquatech. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin and this week we are doing a re-release of one of our most popular episodes, which is episode 156, How Buying Seafood for Retail Works with Bob Cerullo of Wakefern Food Corp. Um, This is a really popular episode. We get all kinds of comments saying that they really enjoyed it. They really got a lot out of the content and it was a really great conversation. So um, with us getting ready for the Responsible Seafood Summit up in St. John in Canada, we decided to take this week and re-release this episode because I think there's a lot of people that may have missed it and could still get a lot out of this great conversation that we had with Bob. So please enjoy this re-release of this fantastic episode. And if you're going to be in St. John next week, we will see you there. Remember, we're going to be doing a few live in-person recordings in front of a studio audience for anybody that is going to the Responsible Seafood Summit and wants to join us for that. So we will see you then. And if not, we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we have a super good episode. We're, we just finished this conversation and uh, we're feeling really good about it. We are sitting down with the director of seafood at Wakefern Food Corp. His name is Bob Cerullo. And he gives us not only insight into his career, we have it's kind of a half career pathways, half regular topic episode. So he gives us a kind of a rundown of how he got to where he is, which big surprise, he just kind of ended up in seafood like the rest of us. <laughs> but um, he also got into what goes into buying seafood for retail when you work at a retailer and you're in charge of purchasing and pricing and marketing seafood. All the in, ins and outs that goes into that. And it's it's kind of a complicated process, but the way he explains it makes a lot of sense. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. I know my, Maddie and myself did. And we also talk about some other some other things that I think you'll find really uh, interesting. So before we get into it, I want to remind everybody to please subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as it's available. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod or you can get in contact with us on our website, which is globalseafood.org slash podcast. And lastly, if you have a couple minutes, we would really appreciate it if you took the time to leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out and we appreciate everybody that has done that. So with that, we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So we're sitting down today with Bob Cerullo, who is the director of seafood at Wakefern Food Corp. How's it going, Bob? Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So far, so good. Pretty excited. Uh, I was on the phone with Bob about a week ago, and he was just getting ready to go on vacation. But now he's back, and he's ready <laughs> to sit down and talk about some really interesting stuff. But before we get into it, Bob, I want to talk about you. So, you know, Share your story with us. Uh, we have an hour here, so let's take a, a decent amount of time to get an understanding of your career and where you came from and kind of how you got to what you're doing now. Well, thank you. Um, Believe it or not, I was a pre-med student in college for a short period of time. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Big difference from the seafood business. Quite a pivot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Um, I guess there's some overlap. Well, if you could find some overlap between those two, I'd love it if you could share it with me. (laughs) But uh, I was a pre-med student, believe it or not. And, uh, 
money was short and I had decided, um, I had decided that I was going to leave school for a short period of time and get a job where I could uh, obviously make the money that I needed and help support my family at home. My parents were furious over that decision. Um, and of course they said I would never go back. And I argued a long time with them uh, and they were right, but I have no regrets <laughs> of where I am today. So I actually, back in the day, jobs were tough to come by. Um, when I was leaving school trying to get a job, you pretty much had to know someone to get in somewhere. If your family member was in the police force or, or in the fire department, you might be able to, to get an application to get a job. My mom was a meat wrapper for a local supermarket in New York, um, and she, much the same way we do today, was in contact with the warehouse, the uh, buying offices every day. And she had a good relationship with some of the folks there. And they had an opening uh, in the meat warehouse. And seafood was part of the meat division uh, in that company. So I went down for an interview and I, and I got the job. And I was uh, taking inventory in the meat warehouse in the mornings. Um, and in the afternoons, I was helping out in the seafood department um, with some of the administrative work that had to happen there. And that was kind of how I got into this in the beginning, in the very beginning. I knew nothing about seafood. Classic. Yeah, classic move. I mean, even today <laughs> when you go in a store, one of the biggest complaints is uh, that we have people behind the counters who don't necessarily know as much about the product as they should. Well, I knew nothing. And uh, the guy I was helping out and working with in seafood was getting married. And he needed somebody to go down to the Fulton Fish Market, the old Fulton Market, in lower Manhattan to mm -hmm. buy the fish for the company. And lo and behold, it was going to be me. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the old Fulton fish market, but it was like going back in time. And I came to love it quite frankly. But uh, my first few trips down there, I literally had photographs in my pocket of different fish because I couldn't tell a bluefish from a sea trout. Um, and those guys down there, it didn't take them long to know that. Um, and they, they had, I guess they had some fun with me. Okay. Um, and I <laughs> That's so some classic lessons. though. Like, uh, you know, no, I don't think we've sat down with one person yet. Who's like, I really wanted to be in the seafood industry. <laughs> Everybody kind of like has a strange story of kind of how they find their way falling into the seafood industry and then they just stay. Yeah. Well, I figure that if you're still in the seafood business six months later, you're probably a lifer. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and, a great and way to look at it. Yeah, you either love it or you hate it because there's there's so many nuances. Um, and I think that's, uh, as we talk, we'll talk more about it. But I think those are kind of things that keep me in it and keep me interested because it's so different. But that was my that was my christening, if you will, into the seafood business. And I worked for, at the time, it was called Shopwell Supermarkets, um, who transitioned into food emporiums in New York. And the company was officially purchased um, I'm sorry, the company was eventually purchased by A&P. Um, and I stayed there for almost 10 years and uh, got quite an education, learned a lot. Um, but as a retail buyer, you're, you're kind of at the mercy of the people selling to you because they do what they do. You know, the people who want to sell you shrimp, they do shrimp all day long. I did it 5% of my time. And while I thought I knew a little bit, I really didn't know very much. 
Well, well, there's a lot to know. <laughs> well, there is a lot to know when you consider the number of categories and items. And quite frankly, I joke with the meat, meat guy here. We're friends a long time. But I tell him, you know, if you count lamb, he's got four animals to worry about. How difficult could it be? <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 and we've got quite a few more to, to manage. But uh, I eventually left Shopwell and I went to work for a seafood distributor for a short period of time. And I was on the other side of the desk. And I will tell you that in that year and a half that I worked there was the greatest education I've ever received in the seafood business because now I was the seller. Number one, people stopped taking my calls. You know, <laughs> as a buyer, you're everyone's best friend and they all answer the phone and they hope you give them a purchase order. But when you're selling something, it's very difficult. And number one, I learned that, that a lot of people who I thought were my best buds disappeared. And some didn't, by the way. But uh, I also started to learn the ins and outs of different categories. You know, at one time, I didn't know there was a difference between brown crab and red crab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found that out when I became a seller of goods. I didn't know that there were number ones and number twos. I was, I was young, inexperienced, and really didn't know half of what I thought I knew. And when I went to work for a distributor, I really came to find out I certainly didn't learn all that I didn't know, but I learned that there was a ton for me to figure out if I was going to advance my career here. And it was extremely humbling, extremely humbling. And I lasted on that side of the desk for about a year and a half. And then I eventually moved on to a company in New Jersey. Another cooperative uh, at the time was Twin County Grocers. Twin County Grocers, they supported the food town stores in the uh, New York metropolitan area, mostly in New Jersey. But they were a cooperative. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever had any experience working in a co-op. I actually have. Is, I have. Have you really? I, well, I worked, uh, I worked for REI for about two years. Okay. So, you know, we're a retailer-owned cooperative today. Wakefern's the largest retailer-owned co-op in the country. But you have a lot of families. Some own one store. Some own 10. Some own, some own 20 or 30. Most are private companies on occasion. Some are publicly held companies. But I went to work at Twin County Grocers as the uh, manager of seafood, um, purchasing and merchandising. Um, It was a great, great learning experience for me, not just um, from the product knowledge, but working for a cooperative, especially that cooperative, there were no purchasing requirements. So if I wrote a sales program and put salmon on sale and I thought I was going to move a thousand boxes, of salmon and I booked the fish and the market fell, the cooperative members, they had the opportunity to go on the street and buy fish if they thought they could get it cheaper from somebody else. And I still had the thousand boxes rolling. Hmm. And so, as you know, fish with time doesn't get better. It only gets deader. Um, (laughs) I love that. I'm going to use that. (laughs) You know, I, I really, really learned to hone my skills in purchasing um, staying on top of the market as best I could. Um, I learned a lot more about retail because I spent a lot of time in the field with the membership in their stores, obviously trying to trying to uh, make changes at retail that I thought would enhance the business. It was a great opportunity working at Twin. I always said it was one of the best places you could ever work to hone your skills and become very, very sharp at what you did. Um, and then somewhere around 1990, 
there was an opening at Wakefern, and Wakefern is pretty much up the street from where Twin County was, um, as geography goes. And uh, I interviewed for the position here at that time. It was the manager of seafood. And uh, I got the job. And, uh, you know, I thought it was just going to be another cooperative, but it was it was quite different from from Twin County Grocers. I um, There's roughly 50 member families that range from many one-store owners to companies who own 40 stores. Uh, Wakefern at the time, I think, had about 165 stores. Today, it's in the 350-store range. Wow. The members are incredibly involved in your business here, which is it's good and bad, um, but I think it's what helps keep Wakefront ShopRite um, most successful. When we have a problem at store level or we write an ad or we ship product out and the ad breaks on Sunday, by Sunday at 10 o'clock, you know if there's an issue, you mm-hmm. know if it's going to explode and exceed your, your, um, your projections. The members are just so involved in the business on a day-to-day basis um, that, again, it, you have to be sharp. You have to be on top of it. And it can be chaos because I don't know the last time you put 50 people together in a room and got them to agree on anything. You know, when I speak to many of the vendors that we do business with, I'm constantly hearing, I don't know how you manage that situation over there because it really is. You always got, you know, three, four, five balls in the air trying to keep a lot of people um, happy with uh, the results of your work. Um. So I came in as the seafood manager, and over time, the company did some restructuring, and I eventually gained responsibility for the deli division and the prepared foods division at the same time. Um, obviously, uh, s- split myself up a little bit. Yeah. Um, m- seafood always being my first love. I, um, I kind of focused there more than anywhere else, if I was being honest with anybody. Um, <laughs> And over time, I made a plea to have seafood be broken off again as its own division and to invest in the division um, because I thought there was a tremendous upside. Um, and the company went along with that and eventually broke seafood off from deli and prepared foods, um, made me a director, and increased the staff that we have to work with. I think that's all That's all uh, helped um, mm. in the I success bet. that we've had today. Did you get much pushback when you were hoping to separate seafood from deli and pre- prepared foods? Well, you know, when you meet with the when you meet with the leadership of the company, it's all about it's all about the presentation. Um, the accountants see it as an additional expense. Um, the merchants see it as an additional opportunity. And when you work in a cooperative, you certainly have the leadership of the cooperative itself. But there are members who are, I would say, more vocal than others that hold different positions within the cooperative. And you have the opportunity to go out and politic for whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Hmm. Um, you know, Wakefern as a cooperative, we have com- a committee structure that is made up of representatives from the membership. So there is a seafood committee that is made up of a number of members and or their seafood supervisors that probably represents 75% of the stores in the co-op. We meet on a regular basis. We, as a buying staff, as a merchandising team, we present our plans um, in their entirety from merchandising to equipment 
you name it, um, item selection across the board. And the committee has the opportunity to voice their opinions. So whenever we have something to sell, whether it's a, a product or a new idea, we always start at the committee level. And I'm always working with the membership uh, to get people excited about what it is we want to do. Um, Interesting. Back in the day, a number of years back, I kind of skipped right over it. When I first came to Wakefern, the FMI, or Food Marketing Institute, they used to have a seafood merchandising committee. And I was lucky enough to, to get onto that committee. And it was comprised of people who had my job all around the country. And we used to meet several times a year to do work for FMI. And annually, we had uh, a seafood merchandising conference each year, which gave me great opportunity to meet with people who have completely different markets, really was a learning experience for me. And again, gave me an opportunity, um, if you would, to be influential in some of the direction that either FMI was taking with seafood or as a group, we would meet with government agencies. And it gave us the opportunity to persuade them to move in, in directions that were beneficial for sellers of seafood, whether it be food service or retail or producers for that matter. Mm-hmm. But that time that I spent working on FMI, um, I eventually became the, uh, the uh, chairman of the FMI Seafood Merchandising Committee and uh, as well as chaired their FMI Seafood Merchandising Conference on an annual basis. That was a really important growth period for me because, again, I got to I got to meet people from all over the country, buyers and sellers, and I got to look at uh, things that I never would have seen had I just stayed home. Right. Um, I thought that was an important part of my personal development. Is that still around? No, you know, it, it, it finally dissipated. I think there was a point in time when shows became – so many every week there was a different yeah. show in a different place that's and, not wrong <laughs> you know even today there's still plenty but you know fmi they had shows for everything and it wasn't just fmi they even had a deduction seminar um, <laughs> and if you sell products you know that deductions are a real problem um but uh, there were so many shows and so many things that people could uh, devote their resources to you can only go so far and it came at a time, I think they dissolved it at a time when the economy was having a real, uh, a real tough time in the late 90s. And uh, companies were pulling back, sending people to all of the different shows and, and conferences that they were going to. And FMI decided to dissolve that. Um, it would probably be a good idea to have something like that, perhaps not on an annual basis, but if you got retailers together, um, I think it, I think there's good sharing of information, and I know that FMI FMI has a lot of share groups um, at the executive level, the CEO level, with non-competitive companies. Um, when I say non-competitive, I know you, you know people not in the same markets, but mm-hmm. you, they visit other companies, different parts of the country. I think that's good for business. Um, but that particular committee was dissolved um, way back then. Interesting. Okay. Cool. So, you know, my time here at Wakefern has been, you know, ever-changing. In a co-op, it always is. We're in, I think, 10 states now when we have five, I think, five different banners. We just acquired another one. So um, our business is growing in many different directions. 
the seafood business in and of itself. I guess we'll get into it a little bit more, how it's changed so much. But for me, I've been in and around a lot and I've seen it evolve, hmm. evolve from, you know, ice seafood counters to so many different things today. When you go in a store, you're just not sure what you're going to see. Yeah, especially with frozen becoming more and more prominent. I mean, I know that you've spoken, I, I saw an article uh, on Wakeford's website where you spoke about, you know, something that we bring up all the time, which is frozen seafood is pretty much the fresher option than fresh seafood at this point. And uh, communicating that to to the consumers is what's is something that's really difficult. And Yeah, uh, there's been an evolution, you know, back in the day, again, um, you know, a lot of seafood was frozen because they couldn't sell it fresh. And a lot of it was frozen past its peak, if you will. But right. that was a long time ago. The frozen seafood industry has grown so much in the past, certainly 20 years, where some of the best quality products you find are frozen products. In fact, when we speak, when I'm at retail and I talk to customers, because I do, I do try and get out into the stores and talk with the consumers, they still say, is it fresh? Is it fresh today? And, um, you know, I often ask, do you know where chili is? <laughs> it's not around the corner, you know? The fish isn't caught today and in the store today. But what they're really asking you is, is this good quality food that I'm going to enjoy when I go home? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the message that we try and give them. And I can't speak for other people. I can't speak for every store in the country or every seller of seafood. But I know what we do to ensure that. And we're proud of the frozen products that we sell. In fact, it probably represents half to slightly more than half of all the merchandise that we sell. We sell in a fro we buy in a frozen state and sell it in a frozen state. So yes, that's come a long, long way. Yeah, and that's just one change. We actually did an episode a couple of weeks ago about uh, the changes that we've seen. And we've only been in the industry a short time, you know, uh, we've been in here less than 10 years. So the rapid rate of change within the industry and, and how it all works is pretty crazy to uh, to experience. But one thing that I want to talk about with you that we, we talked about kind of off air is something that I think, I think consumers have a lot to learn. <laughs> and I think that's pretty well known in the industry that consumers have a lot that they um, are not aware of uh, with what's going on in the industry. But I think one thing that any of our consumer listeners would really be interested in learning about is the process for buying your seafood for the retailers, right? So like, how does the retailer get that food? What is the process that goes into that? And if we could just do like a quick overview on the buying process, I know that's full of a lot of intricacies, but um, why don't we start with like a quick overview of kind of how it works? How does buying for retail work? And then well, we'll get into a little more nitty gritty based on kind of what we get into. Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think at face value, everybody does the same thing. We all believe we have specifications. We all try and find uh, the products. Either we're going out searching for them or we're waiting for people to call us. And I think that's a very big differentiator. Um, but I think most people would tell you we have specifications and we scour the market for goods and then we make them available to our stores. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a real, you know, 30,000 foot view of it. I think for us, it starts with, what is it we want to stand for? What is it that we believe is going to help us be the most successful and keep people coming to our stores? And I've often said, and I think the data would support it, that people will drive by 10 stores 
to go somewhere to get what they believe is a piece of quality seafood. And in fact, not that there aren't people value conscious, but in fact, they're willing to pay more for it if they believe it's quality. So I think once you decide what it is you want to be, and once you decide how much effort you're going to put into maintaining your specifications so that what you believe you're buying, you're actually buying, I think then you can draw a plan. And I made mention of it. Do you go and search for seafood or do you take phone calls and buy it from those? Our resource has become the driving factor in our business. It's not manufactured product. Even the aquaculture goods, we see ebbs and flows of availability. Mm-hmm. You know, Mother Nature still has her way with, with uh, products that are aquacultured. That's true. So the resource drives the, drives the program in my mind. And people who fish or people who have the goods and they have the real goods, top quality, I don't believe they have to call anybody to sell it. I believe when they have top quality product, that they are, have people, the sharp ones, banging on their door every day trying to get it. Mm-hmm. And retail buying, it's very easy to become very lazy. You have people hounding you all the time, doing their job, trying to make money for their company, calling you, trying to sell you goods. And if you go that route, you can become very lazy. And before you realize that you're buying product that may have passed through two or three or even four hands before it gets to you. Mm. Right. So I think based on um, where you want to be, or as I like to say, we want to be as close to the water as possible. And that has changed a lot of what we do here. Um, Not too many years ago, there are a lot of importers of shrimp, for instance, a lot of importers of products from China that maintain significant inventories in the U.S. And on any given day, you could pick up the phone and make a purchase of thousands of cases for something and have it in your warehouse within days. Mm -hmm. I think those days are long gone. The number of importers has probably shrunk dramatically. Excuse me. And people like us are trying to get closer to the water, closer to the source. And those people overseas are recognizing that as many people as they can cut out in the middle, it might enhance their profitability or their financial model as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're pounding the streets, if you will, when it comes to fresh fish. We, of course, bring in fish from all over the world, but we still send a buyer to the New York market every day. And he looks at the fish with his eyes and he haggles for price as opposed to just picking up the phone, calling somebody and ordering it. And that way, I think we better our chances to have quality merchandise. So if you Um, go to the fish show, if you have somebody like a representative from, is it from one of the stores that's going? When you say the fish show. The fish fish market. The the market? market, No, we have a fresh seafood category manager who's responsible for a number of categories. And he gets over into New York at two o'clock in the morning. And he walks the street. He walks up and down the block and opens boxes. And obviously, during the summer or times when fishing is good, it's not uh, it's not as critical. You have better opportunity. Hopefully, there should be more product available. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the winter, he's certainly working the phones ahead of time because most people know what they have coming mm-hmm. from boats ahead of time. Uh, and then you're literally fighting for the goods. And I tell him all the time, if you get to the market at four instead of two, you're probably going to miss the best fish that was there that day. Right. So, you know, you really have to make a decision on what kind of effort you want to put in to deliver 
the goods that you want to be able to sell. So um, how what, is it determined if you're buying, how, how is it determined like what, what product goes to which stores? Well, like everyone else, we write a sales program, which drives a good portion of our business. Okay. How, um, and what is that based on? Local, well, local markets and demands and stuff? Definitely local markets and demands. A really smart guy once told me, ask a customer what they want, and if you give it to them, you'll be successful. So naturally, seasonality matters. You know, holidays matter. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody knows that everyone in America is on a diet on January 2nd. <laughs> so, so we let those things tell us what we should be looking for. But then, as I said earlier, the resource really drives the business. You have to look at what you have to sell. What merchandise do you, do you have that you can put on the market? You can't sell from an empty shelf. Mm-hmm. So availability is driving a lot of what's in our sales program. So you um, can't really plan out that far ahead, these sales programs. No, we can't. And that's a challenge in and of itself because yeah. the advertising people, they want, you know, they want the sales program six weeks in advance. Um, and we're just not playing that game. Right. We have to stretch it out as long as we can with the ability to make changes, whether it's item or, or retail price. If there's an opportunity in the market drops, we want to be able to react to it. If something happens, if there's weather, and we know we're not going to be able to get something out of a particular geographic region, we have to be able to pull that item. So you really have to be quick on your feet, or you can take the safe route. No different than waiting for people to call you with goods. You can take the safe route. You can put farm salmon in the ad every week and farm mussels in the ad every week and whatever other aquaculture product you feel relatively sure you're going to have and you're pretty confident on the price that you're going to pay, you can do that. But that's not really being dynamic. That's not really giving a customer a reason to come shop your stores. Mm -hmm. I want people to come by our seafood. I want people to want to come by our seafood counters and say, I have to go by because I never know what I'm going to see in that case. There may be something new and different every day. Right, um, and that that brings people coming back. And how do you determine? I just I, I listened to another episode for for listeners who aren't aware of this. Um, Wakefern does have like an internal podcast that they share with all of their associates, and I listened to an episode of it that Bob guested on. And um, you mentioned something about just uh, dis- making a deci- decision about what's on sale, and I'm, I'm I feel like that's something that I've never understood how those decisions are made. I I have a feeling they're based on supply chains in some regard, but um, I think our our listeners would be interested to hear, like, how is that decided? Because I, I understand why you can base prices on what's going on in the market, but how will you decide with seafood when something is going to have the short-term price reduction because there is that, like, reliability of the product being there is not always there. So I'm just curious how that happens. I, I think it comes back to the the work that I talked about earlier, pounding the phones, and knowing, you know, we're in New Jersey. There's a lot of coastline here in New Jersey. There's a lot of boats that come in. Mm-hmm. And we're on the phone with the people who unload those boats. They know what's on the boat before the boat hits the dock. If the boat's landing on Sunday morning, if you wait until Monday to call the guy to find out, you're only going to get what he couldn't sell. Mm-hmm. So right. our buyers are on the phone doing the best work they can so that they – they have an idea of what's coming. And I say an idea because you never really know. But they have an idea of what's coming, how long it's going to last for, what the weather is to try and determine, you know, how safe it is to put something in an ad. Because the number one complaint from consumers is when they go to the store 
if the sale item's not there, they're yeah. not happy. So mm. it's um, the supply chain is, first of all, you really have to be willing to pay for the goods because if goods are short or if, if there are, you know, long trip fish and short trip fish, there's definitely a different price that we're talking about here. You have to be willing to pay for the goods and that way you'll get them. We, you know, the, the number of boats fishing in Gloucester today is probably 10% of what it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yep. This is a flounder market. If you want fresh flounder in your stores, you have to be willing to pay the price. So our buyers know, and the people who pack these boats know, that we need to fish and we're willing to pay. And we have obviously negotiated parameters, mm -hmm. but we're not going to not have the fish because we won't pay for it. So you have to have those kind of relationships. Number one, you have to be doing the work with the supply chain to know what's coming. And quite frankly, a little bit of experience doesn't hurt either. Um, yeah. And having those question. connections with people. Mm -hmm. You do, and, and you have to constantly dig to get closer and closer to the water as possible. Yeah, it seems like a lot of what it boils down to is just having that, that knowledge of what the supply chain is looking like on that week and also maintaining your network of people and connections of people throughout the supply chain so that you know what's coming down the pipe. Yeah, you know, you, you asked how do we do this. In this day and age, you know, a lot of people tried to do internet buying just mm -hmm. kind of reverse auctions. And for some people that works. The old you know, RFP, a request for, for proposal, some people try that. And we, in fact, use that where we think it works best for us. But if you're just going to rely on that, I think you're going to find yourself um, maybe uh, not behind. having- Yeah, you're going to find yourself behind and maybe not having the goods that you wish to have hmm. uh, on your store especially if price is the driving factor um, because there's really only way to get cheaper fish, right? It's not, I mean, you can, if everyone has the same level of efficiencies, really only way to get cheaper is, you know, it's probably a little bit older. Less quality. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that's also one change that we have seen. I know since we've started is uh, more and more of these, these retailers that are making commitments to only source higher quality products, whether that means that they are certified against, you know, they have certain eco labels or they're certified against some practices or some type of proven quality standards uh, that they have. They're, we're seeing more and more commitment to that from a lot of different retailers, the bigger retailers especially. So that is something that, that I've noticed has, has been increasing over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's feedback from the consumers. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned consumers needing help and I went to a seminar once and uh, they surveyed people who have my job and they surveyed consumers around the country. And they said, what are the biggest issues around selling and enjoying seafood? And the, the top two things were consumers pretty much don't have the knowledge that they should have about seafood and how to handle it. Mm -hmm. And from a selling perspective, the, the retailer, if you will, didn't have the labor pool that had enough information or the talent or the experience yeah. to handle mm -hmm. seafood as well. And everyone in the room always agrees that, that those are pretty much the two biggest problems. The problem is that seminar was in 1988. And today- A while ago. Yeah. So Maddie, today may not have been- uh, Alive. Exactly. Existing yet. <laughs> well, I'm dating myself here a little bit, but uh, the fact of the matter is, to your point, most consumers 
today are learning. Obviously, the internet, mm -hmm. there are a lot more organizations out there talking about what should be processes, not only to protect you know us so that we're eating good food, but to protect the earth mm -hmm. um, and the sustainability of the product that we sell, obviously. Yeah. Um, and that's a battle that rages every single day. And consumers yeah, want to know. They the don't problem know who to is, listen to. The problem is that the misinformation around the seafood industry is just rampant on the internet as well. So it's our job, you know, people like Maddie and myself who are outreach people and, and communications people within the industry to try and clarify the air a little bit, and, you know, make sure that people are getting accurate information out there, which is just, it's just such a challenge that the industry has been, you know, it's well, a it's, hill that we've a, been climbing forever. Yeah. It's a blessing that organizations like yours are now main, you know, um, a mainstay across the industry because for years there was no one to take that position. Mm. Clearly and sellers want you to believe what they want you to believe. Buyers want you to believe what they want you to believe. Now there's another voice. The NGOs that have emerged, um, for the most part, are trying to get the right information to the consumers. And you mentioned it. Companies like mine and, and bigger companies, and even smaller companies, specialty boutique markets, half of the merchandising information is all about the sustainability mm -hmm. of the products, the certifications surrounding them. Not that the customers know what um, you know. BAP stands for, uh, but if they know there's a certification behind it, they come to trust you as someone uh, someone who's doing the right thing uh, by them and and by Mother Earth, if you would. Um, so it's it's definitely it's definitely a big part of how we do business. You know, if someone comes and wants to sell us something, and we ask them about their certifications, their quality assurance programs, things like that, and if that's not uh, on the tip of their tongue, that's probably not somebody we want to do business with at all. Right. And yeah. we, ha we have some mandatory certifications that we require. We're just not going to go down that road. We're going to walk away. And sometimes for the short period that, you know, we might take it on the chin a little bit, but in the long term, in the long run, we're probably going to win with that. Yeah. I mean, it's that integrity that's that makes things last longer. You know, if you if you stick to your guns and you maintain that integrity in the long run, you're still going to be around, whereas the people who are cutting corners may not. So, Yeah, know, the proof is in the pudding. The yep. proof is in the pudding. That's it. You know? That's it. So we're getting a little bit close to time, but I, I wanted to see, in your opinion, what can consumers do to help kind of drive the market here? I know that we, we've talked about before, consumers, you know, they vote with their wallets, right? And uh, based on what they're buying, they're they're showing you what they want. What what can consumers do to be more in involved in driving this these initiatives forward for like better quality and well, you know, first better and foremost, you said it. Do not reward people who, in your estimation, are not doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. If you continue to reward, no different than a child. If you give a kid candy when he cries, what do you think he's going to do tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And so, as a consumer, do not reward people who are not who don't have the same values uh, that you have. And if you're concerned about sustainability, demand it of them uh, and make them explain it to you or show it to you in the best way uh, that they possibly can. That's first and foremost. You know, vote with your wallet. You will, you will change behavior quickly if it hits you in the wallet. You really yep. will. Um, I think that's that. Yeah, and I think, I think feedback is important. Um, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't have to be every day. But I think if you mention to, to 
any business uh, where you spend money, whether it's food or otherwise, I think if you give them feedback, if that business, um, if they're going to be around, they should listen and you perhaps may drive some of their behavior. I know that here at our company, because we have owner operators, they're in the stores every day. You know, yeah. they go to church with the people who shop in their stores. Their kids play on the sports teams together. I'm constantly getting calls from owners who say to me, one of my customers said this, one of my customers said that. And by the way, that's amongst perhaps 20,000 customers a week. But feedback is important mm-hmm. uh, without question. Yeah. Um, and support those who support those who do it right. Fantastic. So before we wrap up, uh, is there anything else that you want to get out there? And I do want to mention uh, the foundation, but before we kind of talk about that, because it's a little bit off topic, is there anything else that you want to get out there, uh, share with our listeners while you have the platform? I think the seafood industry is doing a much better job of it today. But, you know, for a long time, we were so short-sighted. And I think that sometimes you have to bite the bullet a little bit um, and look more long-term. And I'm not a scientist. I don't know how many fish are in the ocean. I know that there are some groups would like me to believe that there's more than we'll ever need. And there are some groups that would like me to believe that there are none left whatsoever. I I think that the industry has to have some sort of a come to Jesus moment where we we make our best decision of how we're going to move forward based on whatever the best information we have is. And I think those people in our business, as I said, we're doing a much better job than we did so many years ago. But I think we need to look long term and what's going to work best for the business, not just in what fish or seafood we take out of the out of the water, but in how we present it to consumers. Because let's face it, COVID chase changed the purchasing habits of consumers in a very, very big way. Um I don't know that people need an ice counter in a supermarket anymore. Quite frankly, you know, I have a daughter with kids. She doesn't want anybody touching her food. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think I think we really have to look long term about what's going to be best for our industry. And again, we've done a much better job of that. I don't want to I don't want to be negative on it than we have in the past. But the faster we move, those who move quickest are going to win. Mm-hmm. That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. I hope that gets it. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. And then the last thing before we get some kind of contact information and, and uh, everything else, I just want to call attention to the uh, Robert M. Cerullo Foundation. And in as much or as little detail as you are comfortable, can you just kind of give a rundown of what the foundation is and what your initiatives are and then where people can find more information sure. about it? Sure. I, um, you know, those who know me in business certainly remember when this happened, but a, a number of years ago, my son got involved um with drugs, like like a lot of young people do today, um, it's a, it's a it's a nightmare what's going on across America. Um, it's so hard to believe, but I lost a son to drugs a few years back, um, and my family and I tried to make the best of a horrible situation, and we created a foundation in his name. My daughter and I pretty much run it. Um, as no one takes any salaries, all of the money donated goes to helping young people um, who are at risk, who are either already have gone down that road and are looking for a way out, or young people who are having difficulties in school 
behavior issues that may end up making them or, or pushing them down the wrong road. So we have the Robert M. Cerullo Foundation that, that we started after we lost my son. And, uh, you know, we're, we're out there trying to help people not end up in the situation where we ended up. You know, parents, if you're a parent who has children and, and it's your first, you know, brush with this type of a problem, I often get calls from parents and some of them very affluent. They don't, they're not even looking for help financially, but they find themselves in a place where they say, I don't even know what to do. Can you please help me give us some direction where I might be able to help my child before I lose them? And it gives us great pleasure. In fact, at some of our fundraising events, we've had some of the young people come back and speak to the donors. And I got to tell you, there's not a dry eye in the house. I can believe it. When, yeah, can when, people, when people realize that they actually can make a difference and maybe change the life and, you know, one at a time is how I look at it. Uh, and the parents couldn't be more grateful. So we've been operating that foundation for a number of years. Um, as I said earlier, we, we it's 100% of the money goes towards running the foundation. And, and it, you know, people say, I, I'm sorry, I can only give this much. And I, I'll say to them, you know, you just paid for a counseling session for a 13-year-old. Um, and so regardless of whether you think you can have a big impact, Every little bit helps, mm-hmm. and as I said, it's it helps. It has helped my family um, take a, you know nothing will ever replace him, but it has certainly helped my family turn um, a horrible situation into something that is contributing to the lives of others. And you know, as no different than here at work, for me, it's naturally we have we have a, a financial model that we have to attain, but it's all about the people. It's all about the people. If you take care of the people and treat them well, pretty much you'll get their best effort. And and at home, if we can help other families avoid some bumps in the road um, and tragedy, quite frankly, um, we're thrilled to be able to do that. So I, I really um, am very grateful for you to allow me to speak about it for a couple of minutes. Um, Robert M. Cerullo Foundation, we take donations online if anybody is interested. And certainly my contact information is available if anybody wanted to talk to me about it. It's amazing when we ventured into it, even in my own company, how many people came forward to say, I, you know, I have a situation. I don't know anybody who doesn't have a family member or a neighbor or a relative who, who hasn't gone through this kind of a problem or seen it happen uh, next door to them. So. Uh, again, exactly. thank you very much for even mentioning it. We appreciate it. No, of course. I think it's an amazing thing that you guys are doing. And uh, the website is rmcfoundation.org. And we'll make sure that we link to that in the show notes. And any if any of our listeners are comfortable enough to approach us about this and want to get in contact with you or, or with the foundation, we will be happy to make those connections as well. Um, and I am really touched by this story and I want to send my condolences to you and your family, Bob, but also it's an amazing, beautiful thing that you've turned a tragedy, a life-altering tragedy into an amazing foundation that is helping so many people. So I will be donating and I hope that some of our listeners will as well. And thank you for all of your hard work and your daughter as well. Yep. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I'm grateful. So again, Bob, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your experiences with us. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners probably got a whole lot out of this 
And I know I know I did. Yeah, I I have a much more clear vision of how everything works uh, at the retail level, which is just more beneficial for me. So I think uh, it's going to be great. And um, if anyone wants to contact you, what is the best way for them to do that? Through my email at work. It's robert.cerullo at wakefern.com. All right. You know, I would be I would be would be happy to speak to anybody, and I, you know, I hope uh, it's it's will be worth their while listening to the podcast and keep on keeping on. This is a tough <laughs> business, and uh, if you if you're not re- willing to bring it every day, you're probably going to be in the rear of the pack. Yep, that's the truth. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll let you go. Uh, we really appreciate your time, and uh, you know, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you soon. You're going to be at goal, right? I sure am. I'm going to be so, on one of the panels. Right. I'm looking forward to it. Perfect. So if any of our listeners are going to Goal 2022 in uh, Seattle, uh, you can still register now. That link will be in the show notes as well. And make sure you say hi to Bob and let him know that you heard him on Aquademia. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. You guys are great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you to Ace Aquatech for sponsoring this episode of the Aquademia podcast. Folks, that was our conversation with Bob Cerullo from Wakefern Food Corp. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. And if you are interested in um, being involved with the Robert M. Cerullo Foundation, that website is in our show notes. You can donate there. You can contact them if you'd like to um, get more information about counseling or anything like that. So please, if this is something that is important to you, I really urge you to go to their website and check them out and get in contact with Bob and uh, the folks over there at the foundation. Really important work that they're doing, and we really appreciate everything that they've done to help people and that they're going to continue to do to help people in the future. Remember to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen, so every time we release a new episode, it'll be automatically downloaded onto your device, and you have no excuse for missing it. And... (laughs) (laughs) And if you're on Twitter, then you should give us a follow at Pod. We post whenever we have new episodes, and then we also post some behind the scenes. So make sure to follow us there. And you can get in touch with us if you have topic suggestions, guest ideas. Get in touch with us on our website, globalseafood.org slash podcast. That's right. And if you have a minute, we would love it if you would take the time to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. It really helps us out, and we really appreciate everyone that's done that already. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Adios. Adios.